If you're listening to this podcast, well, look, my bet is it's because you, like me, are a reader. You love a good book. And if you're lucky and, you know, if the gods have been with you, you've loved them all your life because someone somehow introduced the power of stories to you. My parents both read to me when I was young, but the real gateway drug for me was my dad making up stories. Sir Michael, that was me, of course. Sir Nigel and Sir Angus, my two brothers. We set out for grand adventures. We'd always win. I think it really drew on dad's background as an Englishman growing up in Oxford. So there was all sorts of medieval stories coming out, but it was fabulous. Now, as a reader, I followed the conventional path. You know, I started with kids books and then moved on to what would be called YA now. And then I remember being allowed into the adult section of the library. I mean, adult in the grown up sense, not in the kind of triple X sense. And then diving into the kind of literature in high school. And then I went and did a, a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in literature when I was at university. But, you know, in some ways I've regressed in recent years. Oh, in so many ways, actually, I've regressed in recent years. For somebody who is happily child-free, I read a lot of YA, young adult literature. In part, it's because my wife trained as a YA librarian, and so she's always finding great books, but also just because they're great books. They are stories, they're plots, they pull you in, they open your world. It's, it's an exciting read. But, you know, it takes a certain gift to write a book that's brilliant for children and young adults and, you know, old people, grown-ups like me. The very best of these books, I think, are wise and they're timeless and they're fearless. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. David A. Robertson is one of those people who can write for young people. I mean, he can really write for young people. He's won numerous awards, including the Governor General's Literary Award, which is Canada's kind of most prestigious literary award, the McNally Robinson Best Book for Young People's Award, and the Indigenous Writer of the Year Award at the High Plains Book Awards. But you know what? It's actually not easy to pin down his genre. Uh, you know, I've gotten now into just writing about beauty of culture and cultural connection and all of those things. And so, um, you know, I've really challenged myself to uh, write in different forms and genres. So I've written all the way from picture books to fantasy, to murder mystery, to nonfiction, to graphic novels, you know, all over the place, uh, just because I want to reach a wide readership. And uh, yeah, I've been, I've, I'm, I'm still trucking along so far. Do you remember the first kind of significant thing that you created? I mean, I do. I was at primary school. I would have been about 10. And I just got swept up in telling a story, I think based on Sir Walter Raleigh, the famous English buccaneer slash pirate. I was 10, but David started even earlier. His first memory was from when he was eight. Yeah, it was, um, they were poems. I, I, I've always loved poetry. And um, it was this this uh, collection of poems that I wrote, um, just in the literally in the back of the my grade three classroom in the closet, and um, I, I liked uh, writing alone and in the in the dark. So I just went back into the closet, shut the door, and I I started writing um, these silly poems. But there is, I think I think when you when I still have it, and when I read it over, I can I can see that I was 
I was skilled at it. That same little boy who wrote in a dark closet came to love Philippa Pierce's book, Tom's Midnight Garden. It is a classic from the 1950s. And so it's got a bit of a different vibe from the more modern type of YA literature. I just feel like it had, I don't know, I feel like it had a little more patience, you know, a part of it. Like, I feel like it had a little more patience with the story. It wasn't so like, you know, go, go, go. Um, you know, I feel like the writing was just so um, fluid and poetic, um, like so refined. And not that there's not literature today that's refined and poetic, but um, I, ju I just love the cadence of it, you know. And um, I, I, it extends to adult literature too. You know, I've always loved like Hemingway and Salinger, and um, you know those those writers have really influenced me as well. Part of what I loved about this conversation with David, honestly, is his love of literature, whether it's kind of classic Hemingway or it's modern fantasy. But one of the things that is foundational to David's work across the genres is not just his love of reading; it's also his First Nation Cree heritage. So I asked David how that shapes his experience and his writing. I think it's like, I think it's like just ingrained in, in what I do and how I do it. I, I feel like I've always had this affinity for stories and this uh, ability to, you know, to, to, to tell good stories and, mm. and, and to, I think just to, um, to know how stories progress properly. And, um, yeah. and so, and, I, and we're we're a culture of storytellers, you know, right. and you know we 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 have done it for you know thousands of years, and yeah. it's how we pass down knowledge and tradition and values and beliefs, and um, whether or not you know I grew up in those traditions and I and, it, and I grew up urban, so I didn't, but I think it's ingrained in the fabric of who I am, and yeah. so I think it's it's spoken through me without me really realizing it, uh, but certainly. You know those traditions that I've learned, those stories, those legends, those right. you know, all, th those have, and the style too has has really, you know, has kind of is something that's grown inside me as well. Uh, as much as I, you know, have this kind of like subconscious mm -hmm. <laughs> draw towards stories, but it's also something that I've really ingrained in. Like you know, the Bear Grounds and, and the Great Bear are are, are adaptations of, of indigenous uh, yes. star stories. And, yeah. um, and so it's the, this infusion of like star stories and, and Narnia and Tom's Midnight Garden and all these things. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been a huge uh, influence in, in my, in my work and, um, it, it always will be, it's like a part of who I am. It's part of my, who I am as a, as a writer too. I love, I love, you know, there's a quote I love, David, uh, inspiration is when your past suddenly makes sense. And it's that kind of interweaving of all these things where you're like, oh, it's a dash of C.S. Lewis, you know, hanging out in the gardens of Oxford. It's a, some of the Cree background under the, under the stars. It's all of that kind of comes into something amazing. Um, mm -hmm. You're going to read from Tom's Midnight Garden, which you've already kind of introduced to us as a, a, your favorite book. Um, how did you choose what pages to read? Well, it's a portal story too, really, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so I just thought I have to, I really have to read where he discovers the portal, you know? Yeah. So, um, it's always like this really, you know, it's this transformative moment in the story, you know, and same with Narnia when they, when they, yeah. when they go through the wardrobe and they keep going and going and then they find themselves <laughs> in Narnia. Um, right. it's always this part where like you, you've kind of like, now you've kind of merged fantasy with reality. And, wow. um, and I, I love that. And then finding the realism in that fantasy, I think is really, you know, that's really interesting. So, um, yeah, so I just, I, I chose when Tom 
you know, the clock strikes 13 and he's going down to investigate, like, well, why the hell is the, he didn't say hell, but why is the, why is the clock striking 13? So he goes to investigate and then he, it's like, he can't see it properly. So he's like, I'm gonna open the door to let in some moonlight. <laughs> and then he finds that, oh wait, like this is like a totally other time in this in the world. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I just, I chose that because I, I just love the discovery part of, of these stories. That's fantastic. Well, let me introduce you. So David A. Robertson, prolific Canadian author, reading from Tom Midnight Garden by Philippa Pierce, published in 1958. David, over to you. All right. So this is the beginning of chapter three called By Moonlight. This was a real expedition. Tom put on his bedroom slippers, but decided against his dressing gown. After all, it was summer. He closed his bedroom door carefully behind him so that it should not bang in his absence. Outside the front door of the flat, he took off one of his slippers. He laid it on the floor against the door jamb, then closed the door onto it as onto a wedge. That would, be, that would keep the door open for his return. The lights on the first floor landing and in the hall were turned out, for the tenants were all in bed and asleep, and Mrs. Bartholomew was asleep and dreaming. The only illumination was a sideways shaft of moonlight through the long window partway up the stairs. Tom felt his way downstairs and into the hall. Here he was checked. He could find the grandfather clock, a tall and ancient figure of black in the lesser blackness, but he was unable to read its face. If he opened its dial door and felt until he found the position of the clock hands, then his sense of touch would tell him the time. He fumbled first at one side of the door, then at the other. But there seemed no catch, no way in. He remembered how the pendulum case door had not yielded to him either on that first day. Both must be kept locked. Hurry, hurry, the house seemed to whisper round him. The hour is passing, passing. Tom turned from the clock to feel for the electrical's light switch. Where had it been? His fingers swept the walls in vain. Nowhere. Light. Light, that was what he needed, and the only light was the moonbeam that glanced sideways through the stairway window and spent itself at once and uselessly on the wall by the windowsill. Tom studied the moonbeam with an idea growing in his mind. From the direction in which the moonbeam came, he saw that the moon must be shining at the back of the house. Very well then, if he opened the door at the far end of the hall, at the back of the house, that is, he would let that moonlight in. With luck, there might be enough light for him to read the clock face. He moved down the hall to the door at its far end. It was a door he had never seen opened. The Kitsons used the door at the front. They said that the door at the back was only a less convenient way to the street, through a backyard, a strip of paving where dustbins were kept and where the tenants of the ground floor back flat garaged their car under a tarpaulin. Never having had the occasion to use the door, Tom had no idea how it might be secured at night, if it were locked and the key kept elsewhere. But it was not locked, he found, only bolted. He drew the bolt and very slowly, to make no sound, turned the doorknob. Hurry, whispered the house, and the grandfather clock at the heart of it beat an anxious tick, tick. Tom opened the door wide and let in the moonlight. It flooded in as bright as daylight the white daylight that comes before the full rising of the sun. The illumination was perfect, but Tom did not at once turn to see what it showed him on the clock face. Instead, 
he took a step forward onto the doorstep. He was staring, at first in surprise, then with indignation at what he saw outside, that they should have deceived him, lied to him like this. If he had said, it's not worth your while going out at the back, Tom, so carelessly they had described it, a sort of backyard, very pokey, with rubbish bins. Really, there's nothing to see. Nothing, only this. A great lawn where flower beds bloomed, a towering fir tree and thick beetle-browed yews that humped their shapes down to two sides of the lawn. On the third side, to the right, a greenhouse, almost the size of a real house. From each corner of the lawn, a path that twisted away to some other depths of the garden with other trees. Fantastic. My goodness, you're taking me right back to remembering to reading Narnia for the first time and what it means to push through the furs and the cupboard and then suddenly they feel cold and they're like, what the hell? What's going on here? And it's a similar kind of revelation like that. It's amazing. Thank yeah, you, and, David. And the time, the time she takes to get him there, you know, like yeah. it's just this like the kind of like the patience and build up and and how confident confidently that kind of rises tension. Mm to exactly. when the revelatory moment happens, you know, as the payoff is, is pretty cool. Yeah. I love that. The line around the, the clock ticking. <laughs> so you feel that kind of building anxiety around I, literally the time is ticking away here. What's about to happen? Yeah, exactly. Like, like animating the house too, right? Like it's like, yeah. Hurry, hurry. Like, yeah. No, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It's so cool. Oh, there's a lot of, a lot of questions I want to ask you about this. Um, Maybe this one, has there been a moment for you, David, where it felt like a threshold moment where you've, you've heard the call and stepped across the threshold? Has there been a kind of similar transformative moment for you? Well, I think I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge um, my picture book, my first picture book mm. um, when we were alone. It was, uh, I really wouldn't be here without that book. You know, in, in, in the position that I am today, you know, I was doing good work before, but when we were alone is, you know, has really been like a seminal text in, in the, this kind of path to reconciliation in Canada. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a very, I think, you know, all, you know, all um, with all humility, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's a very important book to teach kids about re residential school history and it's used across Canada and over the world. And, um, and so that really gave me the opportunity to, and, 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 the, and the motivation to tell, right. you know, stories that matter and mm. to really um, realize that I have a platform to, to educate and to tell these stories and to take that seriously and to entertain people, but to also work to create change. And, um, and it, it, so it allowed me, it afforded me a lot of opportunities, you know, yes. it won the governor general's award and, you know, it, it was, it was, uh, you know, did very well. And, um, and so, yeah, so it, it brought me to Penguin Random House, uh, it allowed me to do the Miswasega, you know, it got me to HarperCollins to do my memoir. And, um, and so now I, you know, I have a bunch of books coming up in the next couple of years that. I wouldn't, I don't think I would have been able to do without it. So that was my like watershed moment where yeah. um, it kind of 
I, I don't know, kind of like in gaming terms or whatever, it kind of like leveled me up, I guess, or whatever, <laughs> yeah, exactly. right? <laughs> exactly. Like you've, you've got the thing and then suddenly you're like, you've, you've, you've been promoted three levels. Congratulations. That's great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What, what's, can you tell us about writing that book? I mean, did you have the idea and just go, this is it and it, and it flowed or was it, I mean, how do you, I mean, Canada's just going through this revelation in the moment of the unmarked graves of indigenous children. And I think, what is it? 1700 young people whose fates we don't know. And it's another moment of facing a horrible darkness around that. I'm just wondering how you, um, look at, look at those stories and decide that there's a, there's a, there's a book to be written here and a story to be told. Well, I, I'd written about residential schools before. Um, right. I'd written I'd written about um, them in my graphic novels. So, in uh, briefly in the in the life of Helmut Osborne and Betty the Helmut Osborne story, um, in Seven Generations, and, mm. and um, but it was um, and I and I'm an intergenerational survivor. So my grandmother, you know, attended residential school at Norway House, and uh, my auntie died. At one of the schools and she's in a grave somewhere we don't know where she is and um you know and uh decades ago my dad uh, told my mom as they're driving through brandon uh, where there used to be residential school that you know there's there's kids under that campground you know and mm. so and, and there is so um it's something we've known about for a long time and and so when the truth and reconciliation commission sent out their calls to action yeah. Um, one of the things that it said was we need to be teaching this history as early as kindergarten mm -hmm. and, um, and teachers, you know, we've asked a lot of them, like they have a very hard job and, and I've dedicated my work to giving resources to teachers to use yeah. in the classroom. And, and I thought, oh, kindergarten teachers do not have support you know, to, to, to teach this history. Like they, you know, it's, it's hard. It's really hard yeah. and, um, to do properly, to not traumatize children and, and so I said, I need to write a book that will, you know, give them support. And, mm. um, and so that was the impetus for what, when we were alone. And, and, um, and then it was just channeling, really channeling like the story of my grandmother and, mm. and other children who, you know, didn't survive and children who did survive and, and just trying to honor their experience and to do it in a way that was age appropriate, but right. that would um, be as powerful um, as, I could, as I could make it um, and educate as many people as possible. And, um, and so that, and that's where, when we were alone came from and it just, and I, and I honestly, like for, for everything that book has done, I wrote it in a day. Like I wrote it very quickly because okay. I don't think I was writing it. You know, I, I really don't <laughs> like, I, I mean, I wrote it, but like, yeah. I feel like I was, I was, I really honestly feel like I was just, I had these children, um, that were inspiring and motivating me and, and mm -hmm. just like, I just wanted to do them justice. I just wanted to honor their memory and honor them. And, um, and so the, when we were alone came out and, uh, really not, not a lot changed from the first manuscript to when it was published. And, um, and then that's where it came from. It just it came from this moment where I just was like, this needs to be out in the world and, yes. you know, teachers need this and parents need it. And, uh, and so, so I just said, if no one's going to do it, I'll do it. And then I, I wrote it. That's wonderful. And I love that, that story which is not common of that, that culmination of something that arrives in a rush. <laughs> and you're like, you know what, it, 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 there, it's not that there wasn't a, a, 
a thing leading up to that, but it was a moment, a catalyst that just went, this has to happen. And it's been, the story has been waiting to be written. So here it is. It's powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's other writers that like, I just feel, I felt really, they, they've made me believe that it was possible, you know, mm. um, because there's other books that were out there that, you know, that um, we're doing, we're doing that work with older kids, you know, yes. like um, fatty legs and um, Shishietko and Shinchi's canoe. And, you know, um, and I thought, well, it's, it, we can do this for kids. Like it's mm. possible. So, um, it just, we haven't done it for the younger kids yet, like the really young kids. And so, yeah. um, so that their, they, their work really paved the way for me to be able to, you know, feel like I could do when we were alone. David, the, the other thing I noticed, uh, in the pages you read from Tom's Midnight Garden, and we talked about it is this kind of the sense of building tension <laughs> and time and you know clock striking 13 um i'm i'm wondering how i'm wondering how i wonder what your relationship with time is like you know as a writer the 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 need to nurture a story and to write and rewrite and also a mission that you have, which is like to get stories out into the world. And I'm just wondering how you navigate that. I've always been, um, I think I've always been a patient, mm. intricate writer, you know, um, very deliberate, you know, um, I, I've always wanted to uh, make sure that I take the time to let the story um, unfold on in its own time, you know, mm. um, to let it happen. Uh, to not rush things forward, to just, to, mm -hmm. to, I almost like, um, almost like I'm just, I'm just observing it, you know? And right. I think if you, if you write strong characters and you have a strong idea of where this, where your story is going, you can kind of just sit back and just allow for things to unfold, allow your characters to lead you. And, um, mm. and so I, I think that's in all of my prose is, is this kind of, and I think that's like a, I think it's like almost like an old time sensibility, right? It's like, right. it's like, you know, it's, it's, I, I feel like I've always, you know, it's interesting. My first prose book, um, The Evolution of Alice, which is uh, my only adult book, um, but that's fiction, um, is uh, when I wrote it and I was reading a lot of Salinger and Hemingway, um, my editor got it the first time, the first draft, and he's like, this, oh, this reads a lot like Salinger did. <laughs> and so it's like, so I, I realized that, and then that's when I really realized that the stuff that we read really influences what we write. Right. Like, you know, it, it, how much we love it, it kind of seeps its way into our own prose, our own work. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I, I've been a very deliberate reader too, because I, I read um, very intentionally to inspire what I'm working on. And, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and then I think it's just like, it's just having... It's also realizing that creating change in the work that I have is going to take a long time, you know? And so it's also being patient in that way. So yes. um, my dad used to say, um, if, if we're doing work in the right way, or if we're doing work properly, we're not gonna see the, the, the fruits of that work for, in our lifetime. Right. It's going to take a long time to create change. Mm. So if you, you need to, be patient with the process and realize that you're not going to see the results of what you've done really right. in your lifetime, because it takes as long as the trauma has been occurring, it takes that long to heal from it. So, right. um, so I've also been mindful of the fact that, you know, when we're alone, for example, 
the 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 impact of that book i won't really ever see the full impact because you you know as as that knowledge as that education um is passed down through the next yeah. few generations um and those those kids who are now you know will be great great grandchildren for example they grew up and be leaders they'll be the mm -hmm. leaders the, the ones making decisions for this country you know um that's something i won't be around for you know and yeah. so but yeah, so that, I, mean, I, I keep that in mind with my, with my work as well. And so I think all of it, I think, it, again, it all involves this kind of balance and patience um, and, and just trying to, you know, um, write the best stories possible. And, and in doing that, make sure that I'm, I'm reading the right stories as well. And so reading is also a, a, big, um, a big part of my writing practice. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of how <laughs> you know, that's the roundabout yeah. kind of expansive. <laughs> I want to I want to ask you about how how you deliberately root, how you curate reading. But before I ask that, I, what what is the change that you're dreaming of? You know, what what do you hope for in that future that you and I won't see? Well, I think for me, it's very simply. I don't want you know an indigenous kid to be followed around the store. I don't mm. want an uh, indigenous girl to be murdered. I don't want, um, you know, I don't want, um, I don't want there to be racist racism against indigenous people. I don't want there to be racism against BIPOC people. I don't want, yeah. you know, I don't want, I don't want there to be prejudice against the LGBTQI2S community. I don't, you know, I, I want us to, I, I think the end goal is to live in a, a society where, we value each other, yeah. where we respect one another for our differences, yeah. where we recognize our similarities and our huge shared humanity, and um, where where people just can live safely, mm. you know, and and they can achieve what in Cree is called minimal kamatsuin, which is the good life, you know, and and so you know I, I don't, I'm not so I'm not so naive as to think that my work alone will contribute to that but i think that if everybody does their part and figures out what their part can be yeah to achieve that then if we all for all doing that then i think we can get there so i think part of it is realizing that my work can contribute in some small way yeah. but then also that you know that my public work you know my public speaking presentations and you know I, I have a bit of a platform not a huge one but um that if I do that work in my in you know on social media and mm -hmm. that work as well as part of my writing as well because you know I, I have you know I, if I do media or if I do a school presentation or if I work yeah. with teachers that's also in mind so that's that's the end goal I know that's you know it's yeah. very that's an ambitious goal but you know if we don't have ambitious goals then what are we going to achieve I agree David who one of the hypotheses that I have around in my language, taking on a worthy goal, um, doing something as important as this is that it's, it's really hard to do it alone. You need a band of people around you. You know, if you're drawing on some on native American wisdom, you know, I think of calling in the directions, you know, the, 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 the king, the warrior, the lover, the magician, kind of different types of wisdoms. And I'm, I'm wondering, who you, how you think about who you have around you to help you continue on this journey, to make this journey? Well, 
I, I have a very kind of, I feel like it's a very kind of tight circle, you know, mm. and, you know, at the front of it are my wife and my children, you know, they, uh, my wife, you know, really makes everything possible that I do. You know, she's a, she's a superhero and, uh, and my kids, you know, I think that my kids as well, like it's, it's, it's like a microcosm of what I want for all children, you know, like, it's like, um, I want the same for my kids. Right. So they're, they're definitely a big inspiration to me and they motivate me. Um, and, and I, I think I've been able to form a really strong circle of literary friends that I think are really important to me, you know, and, um, you know, Shuri Demaline is one uh, who's a very dear friend of mine who wrote The Mare of Thieves. And um, Katharina Vermette uh, is a good friend of mine who, you know, wrote The Break and, um, you know, Richard Van Camp. And so within that Indigenous lit community, you know, yeah. I, I think is uh, is very strong. And then, and then within the wider literary community, like, you know, people like J.L. Richardson is a big inspiration to me and a, a friend. And um, you know, so, so I think that it, I mm. I have that kind of, ability to either just like lean on the people around me or you know just to like um just reach out and just you know text a friend and you know so <laughs> I, I have I, I have a very small but very um, small but mighty yeah I think, I think it's important like nothing is achieved on its own right and um yeah you know writing is a very solitary experience but um, it's, it's, you can't do it without like having that kind of wide net of support. And, um, mm. I have a pretty good support circle. That's great. Unlike Salinger, <laughs> who was notoriously alone and, and, uh, removed. Um, yeah. David, how do you, how do you, how do you figure out what to read? There's so much, <laughs> there's so much good reading out there. And you've spoken about the importance of your reading to be a writer. How, how, how do you curate? How do you find what to read next? So I've always said that I want to read books that are better than me. You know, mm. I want to read writers that are better than me. I want to read books that um, are better than what I've written before. So yeah. um, I've, I choose the, I choose the best stuff because, you know, I, I want to be the best. I, you know, I think if you don't, then I, I think that why, you know, you don't, you don't work at something to be the, the second best, you know? Right. So um, I don't think I am at all, but like, I think if you, if you don't like work towards that uh, and I think if you're not being um, inspired by and learning from the best, then you're not mm. going to be the best. So, or you're not going to do your best work. So um, yeah, I just, so what I do is I look for what books are the, are the best in that genre. Like what, you know, what have I, you know, what can I learn from those? Um, and then, and then what am I writing? And what, what, you know, what should I be reading to, to write my best in that, in that genre, in that form that right. I'm working on right then. So I, I kind of look at those two things. It's like, am I writing a picture book that I need to be, I need to be reading picture books. Right. And then what is the best picture book in the kind of, kind of picture book I'm trying, I'm trying to write. Like what is it? So I have a book, a picture book coming out um, with Penguin next summer. Um, and it's uh, called a song that called them home. And it was very heavily influenced by um, Outside Over There by Maurice Sendak. So, you know, when I, was, when I was reading that picture book, I was like, I need to, I'm going to read Outside Over There a bunch of times. Yeah. Because I want to be influenced by it. Because that's like one of the best picture books ever. And so, to me anyway. So, um, yeah. so I re read that a bunch of times and other Sendak works. And then I wrote my book. So, um, same with, you know, The Great Bear. 
and the Barren Grounds, you know, for the Missoula saga with Great Bear, I reread Thomas Midnight Garden a couple yeah. times, and um, and then for the the Barren Grounds, I read the whole Narnia series over again um, mm -hmm. because I wanted to, you know, so I wanted to draw on those mm -hmm. very excellent, um, rich uh, works, and so yeah, so I, I choose my my what I read very deliberately, and that's kind of what, what's okay. in my mind when I do it. Yeah, perfect. David, it's been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you sharing the influences and, and your commitment and your ambitions as well. Um, the, the question I tend to finish with is, is a big one, which is simply what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? Oh my goodness. You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's been, I've, I've had a really good time talking with you and I think, I think that as, as much as I, I write with a specific goal, and, you know, I, I have that kind of inspiration or motivation to, mm. to do that work. So it's not just to entertain, it's to educate. I feel like we need to like also as, as readers have that similar goal in what we, what we digest, you know, right. um, because, you know, books bring us together, you know, stories mm. bring us together. They create community. And I think the question is what kind of community do we want to create? and what kind of world do we want to be living in? Yeah. And stories play a, I think they play a huge role in determining what kind of country we want this to be, what kind of world we want this to be, because they, they, they teach us, they guide us, they inspire us, they bring us together. And, um, and I think that, so I think on the other end of it, the reader is some that I, I think almost more about than anybody else, because because of the power of story mm. and um and and when i read too I, I think that that's probably part of what i choose to read as well so i think i think just I, i've recognized over the course of my career um i guess just simply the power of story yeah. and and how important books are and always will be and and the community that it creates and the community that we become a part of because of it and um you know i just uh yeah, I just, uh, I just love, I love this world that I live in, this <laughs> literature world. Yeah. I get that. You do. The poet Muriel Ruckeser said, the world is made of stories, not atoms. Now, the first time I heard that, I went, well, yes, stories for sure, but you know, it's also made of atoms. But actually, if you remember my podcast interview with Sarah Hendren, and if not, I'd encourage you to hear that, you might remember this quote from the physicist Carlo Rovelli, that the world is more like a kiss than a stone. So we have a physicist saying, actually, the world is more made through its interaction rather than through objects. So, you know, it turns out even physicists are saying that the world is made of stories, not atoms. So... I do appreciate the deeper story, the deeper story, perhaps, that David seeks to tell in his work. These are seeds he is planting for current and future generations. He said it really clearly. I just want to say it again because I think it matters so much. It is a world beyond racism. And what that means specifically is a world where Indigenous and BIPOC and also LGBTQ plus people are seen, not as other, but as us. If you want to check out David's work, you can find it at his website, darobertson.ca. That's the Canadian ending of our website, d 
D-A-R-O-B-E-R-T-S-O-N dot C-A. Um, he's on Instagram as well, David Robertson Writer. And he's on Twitter in a kind of shortened name, Dave Alex Roberts. So at Dave Alex Roberts. Thank you for listening. It's always such a delight to have you being part of this to introduce you to wonderful people like David and others. If David's conversation with me struck a chord, please pass it on to somebody who might be interested in it. The best way, my favorite way for this podcast to grow is by word of mouth, and you can really help me with that. If you're moved to review the podcast on your favorite podcast app, that's wonderful as well. Thank you. And there's always an invitation to join us at the Duke Humphreys, the free membership site at mbs.works. You're awesome and you're doing great.